it's Maria. I just wanted to give a quick trigger warning. In this episode, we talk about sexual abuse. If this is something you don't feel comfortable listening to, skip the episode. I'll be back next week with a new hotline, and I wish you a happy holiday season. Cheers. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions on the podcast and online. If you're not already following me, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And while you're at it, follow the podcast at Ask a Matchmaker. And of course, our sponsor, my company at Agape Match. I'll include the links in my bio. This week's guest is Atusa Rubenstein. Atusa Rubenstein is the author of Atusa Unedited, an at times confronting, at times healing weekly letter on Substack, where she models authenticity, self-love, and acceptance for her readers. The former editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine and founder and editor-in-chief of Cosmo Girl, in 1998, Rubenstein created a prototype for Cosmo Girl within 48 hours and was offered the job on the spot, making her at 26 the youngest editor-in-chief in the over 100-year history of Hearst magazines. After a successful run at Cosmo Girl, Hearst acquired 17 and tapped Rubenstein to turn the vulnerable title around. After just one year at the title, Rubenstein reversed a five-year decline in 17's newsstand and, excuse me, after a five-year decline in 17's newsstand sales and delivered a total newsstand growth of 23% within two years. She also conceived and was an executive producer on MTV's Miss 17, a series that debuted in the fall of 2005. The following year, Rubenstein left the industry altogether to undergo a grueling 13-year personal excavation. She wrote these words, by the way. I did not say grueling, but grueling 13-year personal excavation and discovery mission that led her that led to three of her own daughters and now a twice a week love letter, a Tucson edited written for her beloved readers and now adults in their own right. Columbia University has honored her as one of the top 250 alumni through the ages. And she's also been recognized by the Girl Scout Council of Greater New York as a woman of distinction. What can I say yeah. here? Atusa, <laughs> welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'd like to enter every room like that. I'm just going to start handing that out as a flyer and like stapling it on the Upper West Side. Thank you for such a Yeah, that would be welcome. fantastic. It's funny because like I saw your name on social media a few weeks ago and I was like, wait, I know this name. And like I blinked like two times and I was like, oh my God, this is the woman that was editing the magazines and I would read her monthly letter to the readers. Like that was my favorite thing. And we kind of look alike. Are you noticing it? Like, are you see? did you feel- Wait, like wait, we we've got kid? that, you know, Greek. Are you Sephardic? I I'm from Iran. So yeah. Okay, we've so yeah, you got that Persian, Greek, uh, Mediterranean, mm -hmm. Middle East thing. Yeah, we, we both have that yeah. look. Yes, that's a compliment. I, 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 feel, well, I feel honored I to look like you. And I would think when you were a kid to see someone that looked like well, you. That, so that's exactly, that. yes. So that's what it was, right? Like I would look at your photo and, you know, you do not look like the other people in the magazine who look in the late 90s, early 2000s, the waif look was in, blonde was in, and you were like this yeah. brunette with a big nose. Now I have a big nose. And I remember thinking, look, look, and I don't, Please don't misunderstand. Like, I don't want you to get offended by what I'm saying here. Like, you just looked different. You, you look like you, me. You would, 
You would have to hurt one of my children to offend me. Yeah, no, I totally. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like you had yeah. this distinctive look, and I look like this as a teenager. And I, and it, you know, it's exactly what you just said. Like I was like, okay, I see this person. And then there were times I remember, like reading the magazine, thinking like, oh, I wonder what Atusa thought when this happened, or when this person interviewed this person, because some things were pretty scandalous. Some things were pretty. Like I loved opening up Seventeen. I loved opening. Gosh, when Cosmo Girl came out. And your face was right there. And it's funny. I, I asked my nanny this morning. I go, do you know who I'm interviewing today? And she, and she goes, no. Who? And I go, Atusa Rubenstein. And she like blinks twice. And she's like, is that the editor of Cosmo Girl? And I go, yeah. She goes, I remember her face. The moment you said her name, I remember her face. I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I think I also, you know what it was about your letters is that they were really real, which makes me so much more excited. Like, you know, with your Substack now, it's like, oh, it's kind of like. Look at how much we've all grown. Look how much Atusa's grown. Look how much have I grown. Like, you know, you see it from a different perspective now, but this very relatable way of thinking. Yeah, just it's a journey. And um, I was telling somebody today, I have really no shame about any part of it. And that's sort of, you know, why I enjoy sharing is because I think that shame is something that a lot of people unfortunately feel and experience. And if I could sort of take the shame out of life's experiences, or at least the ones I've had for, for my audience, um, it feels like a, a real privilege to be able to do that. I love that. So let's talk about this. You know, you, you've you hit all these accolades, you're getting all these things, and then you leave. I left at the height. What made I mean, you leave? In fact, the, the week that I told my boss, nobody knew, it was only I knew, and she knew that, that I was not going to renew my contract this time. Vanity Fair wanted to do a pro profile on me that week. Um, New York Magazine had wanted to do a profile on me that week. So it was really at the height. I was coming off of that SNL skit that Maya Rudolph played me. So things were really crescendoing. And it was a couple of things. And, you know, life is so complex. You know, at the time, what I was actually feeling consciously was... I felt that at my company, Hearst, they didn't get it. You know, being in, somebody... In what way? Well, being somebody who worked with young people, I saw how important digital is, right? And I remember having a budget meeting with them and saying, listen, let's take me and my team and let's put us on the digital property. We only need five people to make the print publication. Like, let's really blow this out. Because in media, what they were doing at that time, and I mean, maybe, I don't think they are anymore. But at the time, what they were doing is putting the people that weren't quite good enough to work at the print magazine on the digital properties. And so mm. it, th that seemed really off to me. And so when I made this sort of proposal, they were just looked at me like I had two heads. And so the ego centric part of me was like, these people don't get it. Let me leave. I'm going to like, I'm bigger. I'm big. It's about a Tusa, you know, not just about the magazine, like a Tusa knows better. Um, but really, really, really underneath it all, because what mm -hmm. was happening on a parallel track was, um, I was in this position, right, where I had a lot of respect in the media, I had the respect of my readers, but behind the scenes, I was cheating on my husband, left and right. Oh. Uh, yeah, I had a really sort of, um, and uh, although there was something called Gawker, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. At the time, yeah. Gawker would write about me every day. I couldn't go anywhere without them writing about me. If I walked into a deli, 
it would be in Gawker within two hours. And yet they didn't know that I had this like whole back story that was happening behind so the wait scenes. gawker gawker was not writing what, what was gawker writing about exactly oh my god they could write about anything like they could be like let's say i was coming off of the today show and i stopped in the deli to get an egg sandwich on my way to work we saw tusa rubenstein looking like a drag queen uh like you know like not knowing that i'm on like full television makeup they just would say i look like a drag queen or a tusa rubenstein overheard asking for a cigarette at such and such bar or a Tusa Rubenstein with a, you know, just whatever. It could be anything. They would write about anything. Like there could be, they would run pictures from my wedding a decade earlier. They would um, talk to people from high school. I mean, they could, they were obsessed. They were obsessed. And I was- How did that, did that make your, you already live, you already live in a small island like Manhattan. Yeah. Did knowing that Gawker might write about you- make that island smaller of course i'd walk into a restaurant i always knew if somebody i knew what the physical gesture looked like when somebody knew who i was and they would likely send in a tip to walker so you know Mm -hmm. it just got but like that was sort of part you know part of the came with the territory um i certainly made myself very you know public and I, i i played into that persona um, but this persona of the tooth, which is what they called me, just was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And yet I had this sort of covert life right behind the scenes that they didn't know about. Um, and yeah, so at a certain point, you know, I, I so when I left Hearst, I had a big agent. Um, I was represented by CAA and I had a fancy literary agent and all the bells and whistles because I, you know, at the time was really sort of a, a, you were like Anna Winter Jr. <laughs> kind of like there were only a few editors like Anna or Graydon Carter or myself that mm-hmm. people knew you know what I mean by name and um in that way and I kept like saying no to every opportunity like VH1 wanted to do a uh a reality series about what my next chapter is going to be and I'd walk right up to the line and at the time VH1 was was big it wasn't what it is now and I wouldn't I wouldn't do it I had a there was an auction for my book one publishing company one I wouldn't sign because they wouldn't agree to gilded pages and a ribbon so it could look like a bible and and I remember my agents would get really mad at me and and I would be explaining the story to my husband at the end of the day and I'd be like you understand right you understand why they're not the right partner for me if they won't agree to the gilded pages with their rounded corners right you understand that right and he was just like what I understand is if you wanted to write a book you'd be really excited that you have this great book deal and you'd write the book like (laughs) you would not write the book yeah sounds like you don't want to be in business and when he said that you know when like you hear truth and it's like a truth that it hadn't even occurred to you it just like landed <laughs> it's like oh right my god I've been cock blocking excuse me I don't know if that's an inappropriate phrase but like I'd been cock blocking every opportunity that was coming my way it was because I didn't I needed a break I was I was burnt out and, and so then I, I feel like I didn't we didn't I feel I mean Maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like you fell off the place, face of the planet. I went off 
I was completely off social media. I um, wouldn't, at one point, I, I think I had a, maybe a Facebook, but then people would reach out to me for job opportunities and I didn't want to entertain any conversation. So I went completely off social media, completely off the radar. Yeah, 100%. And I really then walked almost like how, you know, Cosmo Girl was born out of the path that I walked as a young person and sort of getting to the other side of like a fire. Um, and I wanted to reach back to girls who were maybe, you know, seeing the fire ahead of them or walking through the fire. I wanted to help them because I felt like, wow, I have this great life now. And I couldn't have imagined when I was a teenager that I'd have this life. So let me reach back and help those girls, the girl that I was. And I then walked through another fire. And that's kind of why I'm back is, you know, women in their 30s. Um, I, well, I was a woman in my 30s and I was making crazy choices. And, um, and, and so I want to reach back to the woman that I was you know, back then. I hear online you talking a lot about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. I think it's where really is that important. inspiration? Oh, of course, it's important. But where is that inspiration coming from now? Like how, you know, well, you turn on all your socials and suddenly it's vulnerability, vulnerability, vulnerability. Yeah. Well, because and, and I don't know, I think the Greek culture is like this too. But in my culture growing up, I don't know, like, I felt like I had to be armored, so armored up. And that really served me in media, right? When I was making- Do you mean like emotionally? Emotionally armored, because it's kind of not safe. Like people like take stabs at you. Like, like my mom, my mom was not like a, I mean, she was very loving, but like, you know, like there was a lot of like giving it to each other. And it was like a tough, it was like kind of a Give tough, me an example. Give me an example. Um, like, I mean, this is, this is a little example, but it's just the first one that pops to mind. Long Island, like very blue collar area, kind of place like there could be garbage in front of your house, like a piece of garbage, like somebody would like drink a can and like throw it out. You know what I mean? Unlike the sort of pristine mm -hmm. suburbs that you see in the magazines. And um, I remember one night I went out on a date with this guy, Dan, I remember his name. And I got home, went to bed, no big deal. It was just like a, a nothing kind of date. And the next morning I woke up, I was in college and slept late. It was during summer break. I called my mom at work and she's like really cold to me. And apparently she had found a condom in front of our house, like an unfurled condom, like just like floating around like garbage. And in fact, I had seen the same condom. I just didn't think anything of it. I was like, it's like you sort of hope in that environment, sort of magically, these things go away. You know, I don't know how they go away, but they kind of do. And uh, I certainly wasn't going to pick it up. I just didn't think anything of it. She was like, I know that was yours. And like, she used shame so freely to keep me in order. And to yeah. shame me was, it was just one of her tools. Like, you know, you just go right into shame. And so I was just ready, like, you know, the, the whole gawker thing, or not even just gawker, like, I, this is another example of how armored I was. 
um, I had two assistants that did only letters for me, right? So I had an executive assistant who did my bookings and my meetings and all that jizz and the jazz, my schedule. But then I had these two girls that did my letters because I got like a thousand letters a day. And I remember on the first day, this one really bright girl comes into my office on her first day crying. And she was like, how do you do this? Like, how do you hear from these girls? I mean, like what they're going through is so intense. And she just like, she was like, I don't think I can do this. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, doesn't bother me at all. Like I read it and I take it seriously and I want to respond to it, but it doesn't penetrate my heart or into the soft animal of my body. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I, and I think it has to do with experiences. It's funny. You, you mentioned that extreme example. I'll give you one on my end. And I don't know if it's like shame, but like my parents definitely raised me and my sister to like, don't disappoint us in front of the community mm-hmm. sort of parenting. So I'll never forget like some one time at our church, somebody vandalized our church mm-hmm. or something like that. Something happened. Someone stole something or someone vandalized the church. It was like a big deal. And my mom takes me and my sister aside at church Mm-hmm. And she's like, I know what you did. Mm-hmm. And I just want to throw out that I was eight and my mm-hmm. sister was seven. We did not know. We did not do oh, anything. Totally. <laughs> but like, I think, and my mom knew that we didn't do anything, but my, the way that my tone worked, you know, it reminds me of this John Mulaney skit where like, I think like Princess Diana died and his mom goes, Diana died in this tone of like, you definitely had something to do with her murder. Yeah. yeah. And John Mulaney's like, thanks, mom. I'm 12. Like, mm-hmm. you know, totally. it's like, and I'm in Michigan or whatever, or Wisconsin, whatever state he lived in. He was definitely not in Paris uh, or working for the paparazzi. Yeah. So, but you know, there's, there's this sort like, of, there's this like fear and disappointment. Mm-hmm. So I totally understand that. And then how does that relate to today? How do, how well, do you bring that into to... now? Yeah, I had to really disintegrate that um, that uh, armor. I had to. It was that armor that allowed me to cheat on my husband for 10 meters. I didn't even think twice about it, you know? Uh, it, it, but it was because I was so armored up. Was um, it like a long affair of 10 years? Not that it makes a difference, but like were yeah, you... No, it was different affairs. It wasn't like I was like banging a different guy every night excuse my French, I'm from Long Island, but like, it was more like, like relationships, but like, it was as though I was still dating, even though I was married. Um, Did your husband know? At at a certain point, yeah, no, at a certain point, he knew, yeah, and at one point, I actually, I left the marriage for another guy, he didn't know that, though, I just said, and it was true, the relationship wasn't right for me, my marriage, I knew within four years in, Um, but I, so I, I did go out with this other guy, but that wasn't right for me either. And when we broke up, I ultimately ended up going back to him. Um, but he did find out. Yeah, no, he found out everything. And, um, but my point is it's the armoring that allowed me to do that. And it was against like, Although I didn't think twice about it, I knew it was wrong. Like I, I, I felt not in um, integrity, obviously. I felt not in integrity with myself. Like this isn't who I wanted to be. Um, and that's a big part of why I wanted to take that time off and to really just sort of journey into understanding with compassion. How did I get there? 
Um, and, and that's what, you know, I've been doing for the past 13, 14 years. And so and that's where I get to the journey. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I, I learned that, um, that how that love is the air we breathe. It's, it's what connects us all. Um, I learned that to be vulnerable is the only way to love, right. And to not, you know, you can't enter you can't enter any relationship, and I don't mean just a romantic one, but, you know, armored up uh, and protecting yourself because then there's no, you know, there's no connection. And, you know, I have had my heart broken in the time since, uh, since my marriage, uh, since we became separated. That was the best, most important lesson um, I've ever learned because it is through that that I learned unconditional love and what that really looks like and what that means and that it starts with loving myself um, because you know I have had my heart broken before but like I remember I had a college boyfriend and I, gosh I loved him so much and when we broke up I was so devastated but I had to know I didn't learn from my family how to sort of um, uh, properly sort of, I don't know, I just didn't know how to regulate myself. And so the only thing mm. that helped me was antidepressants. I went on medication. This was that, you know, right after college. And so I had to like dull because I just couldn't go to work. I, I couldn't function. I was so devastated um, because I didn't really have a foundation for myself. It was like, I was only... I was only able to exist if I were in relationship, you know, and super codependent. And so then I marry a guy who would never hurt me, you know, and so that felt very safe, but it also was not very satisfying. And I, but I was with him for 26 years. I was married for what? a long time. Yes. 26 years. So wait, when did the, when did the cheating start? Within a few months of my marriage. How old were you when you got married? 26. And within a few months. And then yeah. at what point did the cheating, like, was stop. it all the way until 26 years? No. Um, I was yeah, when did it stop? Uh, it stopped when I stopped working. Um, I That was my deal. When I stopped working and, and I realized that the journey was about uh, sort of stabilizing my foundation which was call it a year call it 2007 so I cheated <laughs> until 2007 from 98 so almost a decade and um once I left work and decided to have a child um and I have three children now I never cheated again I was done like I I, I during the time I was cheating I knew Obviously, I knew enough not to like start a family or anything like that. I knew like this is like wonky dog. Um, but then once I made the commitment to start a family, I also made the commitment to not cheat. And I'll tell you that in my um, the last five years of my marriage, I didn't have sex with him because I just wasn't into him. So as sort of important as sex was to me that in my marriage, because I wasn't satisfied in my intimacy with him that I would seek it elsewhere um I really took seriously the commitment not to cheat on him so I was basically a, like a nun for the last five years of my marriage 
you're abstaining. Um, totally. Well, you were I, not, well, abstain sounds like a choice, but um, it sounds like, you know, you're saying that you just weren't attracted. But were you, but were you ever? I, I married him because it was safe. I never wanted to feel that way that I felt when John, my college boyfriend, um, and I broke up. I just was like, fuck that. I'm going to be successful. Mm. I don't ever want to be derailed like that again. And so I married somebody who is a wonderful person, um, super, super loyal and steadfast, um, but that I just didn't have those kinds of vulnerable feelings for. And then- Atusa, and- what, is, what is your background? Like um, uh, ethnicity? Huh? I'm from Iran. I was born in Tehran. And are you, are you, do you identify with any religion? Not really. I mean, like super spiritual, but I mean, the, the piece that's really important here is one of the things that I really did have to get to the bottom of during that 13 years hiatus that I think played a big role in all this is that I was molested. So I'm a survivor of incest. And so I was molested for a long time in my childhood. And that's a big part of what actually made me leave my job because right. I was so confessional in my editor's letters. And then this started to come up. Like I knew that this had something to do with the reason why I was having affairs because the idea of secret sex was like a part of my DNA, you know, it was like part of the mosaic of like the architecture of my being. And I knew it intuitively, but like I was not in the place like with your culture, how how you appear to the community, that's very important in my culture too. So if the idea of in any way bringing shame to my family by especially, being open. Especially sexual abuse. I mean, that's oh, something you totally. don't even, there's like, I've, I've heard of sexual abuse in my own, in my own culture, mm-hmm. like in my own community, but it's like, you hear about 30 years later right? <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? You know, like that yeah. sort of pause, what's going on? Hold up. And it sounds like, you know, it, it, okay, so let's take this. Let's take four steps back for a second. Okay. So you were born in, you were born in Iran and mm-hmm. how old were you when you moved to America? About four little kid, like, right. Okay. So you don't really, rem- you don't remember, you don't, you don't remember a lot of the memories. None. Back no. there. I mean, I remember one memory and then, and then we went back to visit. I remember that. Okay. And then the sexual abuse happened there or here? Here. So here um, in America, yeah, we had, um, like many families who moved to America, we were the first family. So a lot of our relatives would live with us as they found where, you know, they would live. Right. And so we had, um, a lot of different extended family living with us. Um, and then some, we all, my mom also relied on them. Some of them paid her rent, um, because we, sure. uh, we didn't have a lot of money. And so this particular person was, was a cousin and um, lived with us for years. Yeah. And I wonder, um, you know, I, I think I just want you to know how important I think this story is because when people ask me, like, what is the most surprising thing that you've discovered while being a matchmaker? It's actually this, like how prevalent sexual abuse is. I mean, yours is pretty up there because mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, family abuse, mm-hmm. but um, but I think, I think that it's definitely something that, you know, people need to hear that, 
Yeah. There, I want to learn now more about this journey of you getting out of that, because I think what's interesting is, you know, you just mentioned it before, like this secret sex, secret, a secret sexual mm -hmm. relationship, whatever it was, but it was a secret sexual relationship. And I think as a kid, what ages are we talking about? The first time was age eight. And it wow. went until I was about 15 or 16. Yikes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so you've, you've imprinted in, you know, emotionally and even mentally, you know, secret, this is a secret, this is secret, secret. And as an adult, you start to replicate these things. And, you know, I'll give you, I'll see, I'll, I'll explain something else here. Like, I'll give you the parallel version of that, right? You know, when people say stuff like you marry your father, or you, you know, to a guy you say yeah. you marry your mother. What I think that means is I've always noticed that the kind of drama that your parents had in front of you as a kid, mm -hmm. you tend to look for that as an adult, right? Like, give me, give me an example. It's what feels um, normal, right? It's normal. Well, yeah, you feel comfortable in that chaos. Like, I remember, and, um, and of course, there's ways out of this, right? If you are able to identify, you know, and if you maybe work, work as a therapist, but if you're able to identify why your parents fought <laughs> and how you can be different, like, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Well, I remember being eight, nine years old and my parents fighting. And I remember what they fought about. I, I don't want to mention it here, but I remember what they fought about. And I remember what I would do every time my parents fought is I wouldn't just go to my room and close the door. No, I would like hide below a, the kitchen table and listen. <laughs> and right. Like I was like voyeuristically here. Like the, I want to know what's happening. Reality, the original reality. Yeah. <laughs> There's drama there. And then, of course, when I'm in college and I'm having my first serious relationship, um, you know, I'm not going to include high school sweethearts here, but like my first serious relationship and we're fighting, I can logically say that this fight is stupid. I should not be with this person. But at the same time, I know what the walls look like in this room of fighting. I've been here before. I'm that little kid below that table. So I know how to work through this chaos and be still be whole. At least that's what I think, right? At that time. And it's only when that relationship had hit its, you know, the cliff. I it's it's always interesting to me. Like I always think about this is what I learned at 23. I learned that the opposite, and thank God I learned this young, but I learned that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Mm -hmm. And so as the him and I were fighting again, I it was like a cliff. It was like I'm driving off this cliff and it's no more hate. It's just like, I just don't care about you anymore. I don't care about having a fight with you anymore. Like we're done. And it was at that moment where I was like, I am repeating the mistakes my mom made. Mm -hmm. my, I'm having the fights my parents are having. I can't do this anymore. I need something else. And I worked on that. And then you can see with the men that I dated before my husband, then of course my husband, like I don't have the fights my parents have ever with my husband. I have, I have, we have our own disagreements, of course, but they're not rooted in this like very avoidant attitude that my parents both exhibit. And so this is a parallel, innocent example. And you're giving me the parallel extreme example where it's like secret sex. Mm -hmm. I understand the comfort of these walls, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And now I'm an adult mm -hmm. and I'm doing it again to yeah. this person that I have said I am going to love until I die. Right. hundred percent. And so the, the really what needed to happen like a lamp, I needed to be rewired. And that's what you were describing as well, that you needed to be rewired 
so that you can come together with your husband so that I can come together with a future partner or partners um, in a different way. But like some things, I don't know that will, they will ever be rewired, for instance. Um, and, and this is stuff that people don't really talk about. Uh, and it's like a little taboo. But the way that my cousin kissed, that's the way I like to be kissed. You know, I, mm. I, I don't hold it with shame or judgment anymore. Um, but it's real. And like power dynamics um, kind of turn me on. You know, like I'm not, I, I, it's not like, obviously it's not like I'm out there like molesting anybody. <laughs> it's nothing like that at all. But like, you know, when we, I sort of talk to friends and I'll be like, what's your porn? What's your porn? You know, like what, like what turns you on or like, what's your fantasy? Um, power dynamic is my When you fantasy. say power dynamic, are you saying like Could the guy's either. got power over you or it doesn't matter? Either. Could be either. Just right. the dynamic, that there is a dynamic, um, you know, that's kind of hot to me. And, right. you know, again, I can sit there and stand judgment, but like then there's like a level of self-hatred that I can't change yeah, all you can't of what change I've gone past. through. Yeah, but I can love myself through it. I can have compassion for myself. And I think that like the folks who end up either being in injurious relationships or even like committing the same crime that was done to them, I think are people who probably are holding themselves in a lot of judgment and self-hatred and then they end up perpetrating um, as opposed to just being like, all right, well, this is what, you know, this is what it is. So I accept it. Um, but yeah, I did. Do you I have find, how did you, what steps did you take to rewire? Oh my God. So many steps. I mean, it's been like, I worked as full time on the rewiring of myself as I did on the magazines. Um, everything from sitting in restorative justice circles relating to incest and childhood sexual abuse to obviously psychotherapy, but many different forms, somatic, uh, hypnosis. Uh, internal family systems um i have done plant medicine i've done i've done every i mean meditation yoga different physical practices and i continue to do those the relationship that i was in after my marriage ended i was really i really exposed myself you know in terms of my horror and my vulnerability and um it was so wonderful and majestic and I have no regrets over the pain that the breakup caused because I felt like, wow, I'm alive. Like my heart works and I don't have to be in a professional relationship, which is how I felt I was in my marriage for all those years. Do you feel like, um, well, when did you start going public with all these things or have you been public for a while? I uh, know. So, I mean, I. Or is this it? Is this you going public right now? <laughs> Here we are live on set. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it was really through my Substack, um, Atusa Unedited. 
you know, it was, why did I feel ready? When um, the guy I called the bear in my thing, when he and I broke up the first time, uh, I had to really, unlike when John and I broke up and I just took the pill, um, I had three kids I had to take care of. And yet I felt that same level of internal devastation. And for, you know, reasons, my own reasons, I didn't want to take a psychopharmaceutical. Um, but yet I had to take care of these kids every day. And, and I was dying. And so I had to do the only thing that was available to me, which was to learn how to love myself through it and not like the way I was parented if I fell I got yelled at you know what I mean it was like well you shouldn't have done blah 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 you know like it was never like oh no come here baby let me hold you it's gonna be okay I'm here with you I never got that message you know if I hurt myself my mom would be so stressed that I'd get in trouble you know so right um and I think that's not uncommon particularly within different ethnic communities and so um, I had to just learn to love myself through this heartbreak. And once I loved myself, I really and understood this idea of what does unconditional love actually look like and self-love actually look like? Because I think we hear a lot of memes and stuff on social media and it all sounds good, but like I, I actually tactically learned how to do it and it changed my life. And once I what learned does it how look to like? do it, yeah, that, that, but that's when I went public is that I felt okay. like I had learned something that I really wanted to pass on. Um, what does it look like? So at any given moment, if I'm upset about something, it could be mm -hmm. that it could be just a, even a small interaction. Like, let's say I felt I hurt you for some reason on this podcast or that I insulted you. You know how like we can be tough on ourselves if we feel like we've somehow stepped on someone's toes. Do you so, feel this? I don't feel that here today. No. no okay. Good. But <laughs> if I, I did, I... <laughs> you no. Know, but if I did, okay. I would. You know, like I would really feel it. And so, right. W w what I would do is I would put my hands on myself, uh, mm. usually on my belly. But if I'm somewhere that I can't, like that, that would look weird. I'll put it on my neck. You're um, soothing yourself. And I will say. If I can say it out loud, or if not, I'll say it to myself, but I try to get to my, get myself to a place where I can say it out loud. Of, um, I, I'm here with you. I'm going to stay with you until you feel it's safe enough to come back in your body. Because for me, being embodied is hard because during the incest, I really had to leave my body. And so when I wow. get upset, when I get upset, I touch myself to bring myself back in my body and to tell myself it's going to be okay that there is a grown up here now. And that grown up is, is also me. And it's so where it's the creation of, and especially for people who didn't have a mother who was capable, despite their best intentions of unconditional love, which is most people, by the way, is to, to create this feeling and this idea of the creator and the supplicant within yourself. So you are both the creator, you are both the unconditionally loving mother, but you are also the child who needs to be loved. And so both, you know, both of those parts of me um, need to come together in those moments where I'm upset. And so I'll soothe myself over little things. And of course, when it's a big thing, 
I, I soothe myself, but I think the physical element of pulling myself back in my body with touch is important. Also, the words are important. Um, and I do it as often as I need to. You know, I don't. I wish people could see you right now because uh, you're doing it the last minute and a half. You've, as you've been talking, you've been doing it to yourself. You're still doing it right now. You are, you're currently touching the top of your chest and shoulder to soothe yourself to find the words. And I think that's, that's very, I don't know what the right verb or adjective is here, but I think, I think it's great that you've learned a coping mechanism to deal with what I think might be a form of anxiety for you. Well, I don't, I don't think of it as anxiety. I think of it, I think of it as, you know, we all have moments in our lives where we are disappointed, we are mm. worried, um, we feel hard feelings. And what many of us have been taught to do is bury it and move on come on girl you got this right. and you go girl and i think that right. that kind of messaging is actually destructive it and is. that's it where totally we is. abandon ourselves because when you feel sad you don't just power through you stop and you love yourself through it and so to me it's you know having known people and been related to people who actually have anxiety you know, I think this can help them too. But I think we all, we just are used to almost like discounting our hard feelings. And unless it guts us, uh, that we, and that's what being vulnerable, being vulnerable is just like, to me, it is making space for your real feelings. And not just the feelings that are easy for other people and yourself to digest. Um, but the only way that we can really be our full authentic selves is to make space for what's harder to digest, Right. you know, to be digested and not just buried into, you know, I remember, I remember at one point, my husband and I um, had a real crisis in our marriage and it involved, and this time, believe it or not, I was the victim, <laughs> not the victim, but he was the one who had done something really atrocious. And I remember saying to him, like, like you know, we can't leave shadows in our the house of our love, in the house of our relationship. And I feel that a lot of times when we bury feelings, even if they're about little things, they add up. And then suddenly the, the sort of house of your relationship has all these rooms that have like a lot of shadow and a lot of darkness and a lot of cobwebs and, oh, we don't go in there, you know? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're like restricted to like one area and that is watching Netflix together, you know what I mean? Or fill in the blank. Yeah, no. And also that's just what you just described is so exhausting. Like people always ask me about like, you know, how direct I am. And it's because I don't like to live in those shadows. I've been in a relationship like that in the past. And it's like, you have to conform yourself into this shape that is available in that relationship. And you just think to yourself, like, am I ever going to be happy in my authentic self? Like, I remember thinking that and just being like, well, no, I need to be like, I know I have to be me and I have to just be direct and like, here's how I feel. Let's fix it. I don't like to go to sleep angry at all. Mm -hmm. um, I will wake up my, like the other day, my husband and I, we got in this like 
disagreement. It was about my birthday. So I'm the planner in my relationship, Atusa, and I believe that in most relationships, there's always one planner, but I do want my husband to plan my fucking birthday. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, the Tuesday before my birthday, he's like, so what do you want to do for your birthday? <laughs> and I was like, George, I can't deal with this right now. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. like, really, like, I was getting like, I could feel myself getting angrier. I could also, I knew that day that I was ovulating and when I'm ovulating, or like, no, I'm not ovulating. Yeah, I was ovulating that day. And I know when I'm ovulating, like my patience is very thin. Mm. So because I knew that about my body too, like I like I don't like to put myself in positions where I need to have more patience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I try to have like less team meetings that day or, you know, like less interaction with people. And so now my husband's like, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was like, just, just, uh, I can't talk with you right now. I can't deal with this. And like, he just like went to bed. He didn't realize that I was upset. He just mm. went to bed. And then it's like mm-hmm. two in the morning and I'm coming into bed and I'm like, wake up. I can't, I'm angry right now. And I can't be angry going to sleep. Just wake up. And he's like, mm-hmm. we're fine. We're fine. I already booked a restaurant. Yeah. We're fine. Go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I just need you to know that I'm really sorry. I, I'm saying mm-hmm. sorry now. Like, I'm so sorry for like losing my patience. Yeah. I just don't want to be angry before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because I really am scared of what you just said. I don't like, if your relationship is a room, mm-hmm. I don't want, first of all, I don't want that room to be square. I want it mm-hmm. to be circular because. And, and you want your ha- your relationship to be a compound, a property, a, you know, yeah. a place where a massive sphere, right? I don't yeah. like corners. Right. Corners tell me that you tuck things away. I want my relationship to be a massive sphere as big as that new Apple thing in Cupertino. Mm-hmm. And there's just room to grow, room to accelerate, room to, you know, like things can move and I don't have to live in the shadows. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, I think what you're sharing today not only are you being very vulnerable here sharing what you're sharing, but I think, you know, you're giving women insight and men insight onto, you know, if there's darkness, mm-hmm. there are ways to find light, uh, you know, but it looks like it's going to be a, a lifetime journey. I think it's a lifetime journey for all of us. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's because like, even in what you described, like I think the next step to that is rather than needing the assurance from George that everything's okay and you needing to give him assurance that you give yourself assurance right. that like, I love you. I'm okay. He doesn't need to do anything for my birthday. I, I got you. You know what I mean? Like, right. and, and because it's, we don't, when we are, have our own self, sustaining sort of root system right if we're a tree we can be next to each other and really being in that sphere and have a lot more I think flexibility and ability to explore the breadth and the depth of the relationship when we're less entangled then when our roots get entangled then suddenly there's a lot of attachment and that's that's been one of the biggest relationship uh things that I have um, really been working on. And I think it's like a daily, I think that is a daily practice. It's almost like daily hygiene is to, um, really just be checking on attachment and like, you know, what I learned about the bear is that I don't, if I only loved him when he wanted to be in a relationship with me, do I really love him? Or do I, am I only attached to the idea that he's my boyfriend? 
Um, and mm-hmm. so to me, like, I feel like I'm always just trying to let go of attachment um, so that my relationships can be pure and that I can really be pure to myself and authentic to myself as opposed to this idea that I'm trying to back the car into, you know, which is whatever, whatever that idea of a relationship might be. Let me ask you one final question. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to all this, how has this affected your parenting style? Um, well, I mean, one thing, one of my children said something that I, I really took as such a high compliment, um, because she's having some, you know, teenagers have challenges with their parents, and she's having some challenges with her dad. And what she said to the therapist about me that was shared with me later, was, you know, when mom, when mom makes a mistake, she always, she always apologizes. And and always like we are able to find common ground. Um, and I think that, that that level of connection is important to me with my children as well. I mean, like what we're talking about in terms of relationship and authenticity and all of that jizma jazz isn't only for boyfriends, you know what I mean, or significant others. It's like I want all of my relationships to be in integrity. Um, you know, so my parenting if I have to say something that's unpopular, you know, I'll put it within a context. I'm not trying to be their friend, um, but I, I want our relationship to be in integrity always. Uh, and so, you know, I make myself vulnerable. Like I'll, I'll you know, I, I'm never trying to be like my generation, our parents were right, you know, like because I said so. And like, you don't ever question what they did. And, and in my relationship with my children, you know, there is a lot more discourse. Um, and that doesn't mean they run the show or they get their way. But like, you know, we talk about things until we're both in real agreement of what page we're on, as opposed to just being on my page, because I am biologically older than them. I, I feel like based on today's conversation, it seems like the parenting style has shifted dramatically between your mother and you with your kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the fact that your kids go to therapy, right? Like, oh, yeah. I know, like, like, that's just so different compared to like, how our parents raised us, which was like, what do you mean a therapist? Why would you go and to they, a therapist? And they're not in therapy know? because they have a diagnosis, right? They're in therapy so that they can have space <laughs> outside of me to talk about right. whatever they need. But it's so funny, like the other, like when I was a kid, I was To learn the emotional sleep. range that, you know, they're in therapy. Most people are in therapy because they need to learn the emotional range that we just are unable or incapable of learning on the existing environment that we have, right? Like you, Atusa, you are, you have your own background. You have your own environment that you've established for your kids. And that is going to teach them, you know, this particular range of emotions. And they're in therapy for them to supplement the rest of that range to, to identify I'm feeling this and this is how I'm going to work on it. And, and I think today. that that is, imagine if you had that at 10 years old. Yeah. Well, I would have had someone to say, I'm getting molested. Help me. You know, but (laughs) nobody, you know, I'd go to the nurse's office every day with a stomach ache and no one really ever even thought to question that. But I mean, the other day, one of my children said, 
uh, I was mad about something. I was like really jammed up because I'm going through a divorce and it gets hairy sometimes. And and the one of my kids goes, Mom, this is a house of peace. Remember that. <laughs> I was like, you're right. <laughs> you know what? You should make that into a sign and give it to them for New Year's. This is a house of peace. <laughs> yes. It'll be well, Atusa, it was amazing having you on the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I feel like the journey that we just both went on listening to your story um, ha was incredible. Like, you know, you, you, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming and telling me and telling uh, my listeners about you and where you're at right now. How can people interact with you now? How can people, you know, read more of your newsletter? I mean, I'm going to include a link to your Substack in the episode notes. So if anyone wants to listen to Atusa, go there. But is there anywhere else that I can redirect people to interact yeah. with you? I'm on, you know, Instagram and TikTok at my full name, Atusa Rubenstein. And, and I just want to say to you, I know you're really obviously very accomplished in what you do. Um, but the way that you have made your life's work, your life's work, like this feels <laughs> that this is who you are and you're just really sharing it with your community is so 2.0. And you, Thank you are really a mom. I'm gonna start crying. Atusa, stop it. Like you're no, like one of my heroes really as a child. And like just you saying that is making me like get teary-eyed, so I don't want to. And thank you so much. I just feel so honored for you to be here. Um Atusa Rubenstein. I'll have links to her TikTok, Instagram, and her Substack. Subscribe to that. It is incredible. If you grew up listening to it, uh, reading Atusa's letters like I did, you're going to love it. But even if you didn't, she, you, you know, you heard it here. She's very open and vulnerable and in her authentic self. And you get more of that reading her Substack. Atusa Rubenstein, thank you so much for coming to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you, thank you so much. And, it was so fun. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to speak to me on an upcoming hotline episode, follow me on Instagram at Matchmaker Maria. I'll post a link there and we'll chat then. Until then, you can learn more about what I do or enroll in an upcoming Agape Intensive by visiting agapematch.com services. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.